Bibles, please, to the book of Philemon, the book of Philemon. And we will pick it up here in the beginning in verse 15. 15 of the 25 short verses in this epistle. Uh, before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. That's going to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the challenge from this text. Lord, we're just 14 verses through, and we have been challenged and convicted to forgive as you have forgiven us. And so we're thankful for this short epistle that is so packed with practical theology. Theology, Lord, that we can live out every day. A theology, Lord, that challenges us to respond and to love and to live as you would have us live in a way that would bring you honor and glory. And so, Father, as we walk through our next section of text here, Lord, I pray you'd open up our hearts and minds to your truth. And I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of the word. And that you would be honored and glorified as we apply this to our lives for you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are through the first 14 verses in this very short epistle. We now have a pretty good idea of who Philemon is. He's the wealthy and influential man of Colossae who was led uh, to Christ by the Apostle Paul. We also have met Onesimus. Onesimus is the runaway slave who has been led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul as well, somewhat by extenuating and remarkable circumstances. Afterwards, Onesimus and Paul formed a very close relationship as Onesimus was serving Paul in while Paul was in prison. So he was actually his arms and legs, if you will, of the ministry while Paul is in prison. And so the two men formed quite a bond. But they have this issue that's hanging over their head, and that is this issue of the fact that Onesimus was a runaway slave. And under Roman law, he would be considered a felon, a fugitive. And Philemon, under Roman law, would have all rights, including up to including capital punishment for this crime. The text also seems to indicate that it perhaps was not just a loss of wages that Philemon incurred while Onesimus ran away, but perhaps he also took something with him uh, that was Philemon's of money or material or whatever it was. Uh, the text doesn't tell us, but something, the, the original grammar would indicate that there's something else in addition uh, that was taken as well. So we have this issue that's between Philemon and Onesimus. But beyond that, we also have the issue that Onesimus is now a believer. And that changes the dynamic now between Philemon and Onesimus. It may not change it legally under the Roman law. It may not change it socially or even culturally. But in the eyes of the Lord, this relationship has changed now. There's a difference. It's not just employer-employee or master-slave or servant and master. It's now brother-to-brother. Brother. And so that has put quite a little bit of a thorn in trying to resolve this issue. Now, because of Paul is in prison, he can't go to Philemon and say, let me talk to you about this face to face. He does indicate at the end of the letter that he hopes to do so. 
But he can't do that right now. So he sends a letter with one of his beloved workers, Tychicus. And Tychicus takes this letter along with Onesimus and delivers it to Philemon. And so as Philemon is sitting there opening this letter, he sees Tychicus, who he knows. And then he sees Onesimus, the very man he's having a conflict with. And he opens up this letter and reads it, just 25 short verses, but packed full of theology. Well, we learned some things so far in our first 14 verses. In the first three verses, we learned some overarching principles of forgiveness for believers. You see, we have a different calling than the world for forgiveness. And as difficult as that may be, we are called to live to this standard of forgiveness. And it is rooted in the fact that Christ has forgiven us. So in verses 1 to 3, we learned first that believers are called to be a forgiving people. We are actually to be known as a forgiving people. Secondly, we learned that when we forgive others in the manner that God has commanded us to do, we will often be misunderstood. The world will not understand how we could possibly forgive someone who has perhaps even intentionally tried to hurt us. And finally, we learned that God chastises those who fail to forgive biblically. That if we're holding bitterness in our hearts, if we're still looking for our pound of flesh, if you will, for the wrongs against us, that God will often chastise us until we come around to the right way of thinking. Then in verses 4 to 7, we learn that biblical forgiveness, we learn this is what it's supposed to look like. We learned in verses 4 to 5 that biblical forgiveness is demonstrated in our love for the Lord and our love for each other. We were actually talking about that in Sunday school this morning. In sense, in other words, since only true believers love the Lord and love other believers, only genuine believers can forgive biblically. Not forgive as the world says we should forgive, but forgive biblically. How are we forgiven biblically? As far as the East is from the West. We are called to forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. How has he forgiven us in Christ Jesus? Completely. No strings. No conditions. I'll forgive, but I won't forget. I'll forgive, but don't ever expect anything nice from me again. I'll forgive, but I'll hold this bitterness in my heart forever. No. That's not how we're forgiven. Can you imagine if we went before the very throne room of grace and that was God's standard for forgiveness for us? Oh, Lord, here I am. Oh, so glad you're here, Pastor. Now let's bring up the giant screen of your life here and let's talk about all the ways that you held bitterness in your heart and struck against those. Now, should I hold you to that standard, Pastor? Is that the standard you want me to hold for your life, the standard that you hold for everyone else's? I don't think we want that, do we? I know I don't want that. I'm thankful that Christ has forgiven me completely, without strings, without conditions. And Jesus says, listen, if you're a follower of mine, the standard for forgiveness is the same for you. You don't get a different standard when others sin against you than I have provided for you when you have sinned against me. Then in verse uh, 6, we saw that not only is this 
uh, biblical forgiveness demonstrated in love for the Lord and for each other. It also prioritizes the unity of the body of Christ and the glory of Christ. As believers, we are to prioritize this gathering, this privilege that we have to gather together. And we are to strive with everything in our power to try and hold that together. And sometimes that means that it's not going to go the way that we want it to. Or sometimes it means that we're, we're not going to get everything we wanted. But that the unity and the bond that we have in Christ is greater than whatever conflict we have with each other. And then finally in verse 7, we saw the biblical forgiveness should be an encouragement to the entire church. That when we see each other forgive like that, that it should be an encouragement to us. If some of you knew how others in this body have forgiven others who have harmed them and hurt them so deeply, if I could ever share that with you, which I cannot, you would be greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged of their love for the Lord and their love for others. Beginning in verse 8, Paul begins his appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus like that. And it says, the first thing you're going to need, my brother, is an open heart. You're going to have to break the hardness around your heart, and you're going to have to open up your heart. And when you do that to forgive others, guess what? You take the danger, and there's a risk there that you might be hurt again. But you can't love again if you're not willing to take that risk. Because bitterness is like ivy. And ivy wraps itself around the plant and hovers over the top of it and steals all the sun and steals all the moisture. And then it wraps itself around the roots and then chokes out all the nutrients from the soil until it kills the plant. And that, my friends, is what bitterness does in our hearts when we allow it to fester. And love cannot grow when bitterness is choking it out of your heart. So he makes his appeal in verses 8 and 9. He appeals for an open heart on behalf of love, not his love here. That the love he's referring to is not Philemon's love for Paul. That comes actually later. But his love for God and God's people. And the, the kind of love he's talking about is what kind of love? Agape love, which is the love of sacrifice, the love of the will. It's actually the love that's talked about in marriage. I choose to love you even when you're your most unlovable. I choose to love you even when it's really difficult to do so. That's the love of the will. That's agape love. Incidentally, that's the love Christ has for us. Once again, God in his infinite wisdom does not love us conditionally or we'd be in a heap of trouble. So this agape love is the love that sets aside personal rights, acting instead for Christ's glory and the welfare of others. And Paul knows that Philemon is a man who's already demonstrated repeatedly his love for the Lord and his people. Then in verses 10 to 11, Paul makes another appeal, this time 
on behalf of a fellow believer. He actually calls Onesimus, my child, Onesimus. And from the moment that Onesimus was saved, everything changed between Paul and Onesimus. And so Paul welcomed Onesimus, now as a brother in Christ, in the way that we are welcomed into the family of Christ at the moment of our conversion. But now Paul wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus the same way. No longer just a slave, he's now Paul's son in the faith. And he is Philemon's brother, spiritually. Verses 12 to 14, then, as we looked at last week, Paul makes another appeal for an open heart on behalf of the gospel. He tells Philemon, I know if it were possible for you to minister to me, you would do it. I know in a heartbeat that you would rush here to be my arms and legs in prison. If it was possible at all for you to do that, I know that you would do that. Because I know that you love God and I know you love God's children and you love the gospel ministry. You've demonstrated that your whole life. I don't doubt within, I have no doubt that you would be here if at all possible. But since you cannot be here, I know you would have gladly let Onesimus stay if I had just kept him and sent you a letter and said, Onesimus is of great value to me. Paul says, I know in my heart that you would say, what a blessing that is, that Onesimus is such a blessing to my dear friend, Paul, and incidentally, spiritual father here, is he not? He also led him to the Lord. Paul says, I don't want you, he says, but I don't want to make this decision for you. I want you to make the right decision. I want you to choose what's good and do good, not because you didn't have a choice. I want you to be good because you did have a choice and you chose the right way. I want you to make this decision because of your love for God and your love for your brother in Christ and for the sake of the gospel ministry. And beloved, this is where forgiveness starts, doesn't it? It starts when we open up our hearts and we let the person who has sinned against us or who we have perceived sinned against us. And we need to be like the father in the parable, a parable of the prodigal son, don't we? We need to open up our arms. We need to let go of the anger and the bitterness and the wrath. We need to quit assigning false motives and instead extend grace. We need to forgive them the way Jesus has forgiven and continues to forgive us completely without strings, without conditions, without a grudge. We need to welcome them with an open heart and love them with the sacrificial love of the will, agape love. The love that says, I choose to love you because it glorifies God. I choose to forgive you because I understand how much I have been forgiven in comparison. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of my love for God and all of his children. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of my brother or sister in Christ. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of the gospel ministry. I never want to undermine the gospel message because of the hardness of my own heart. I never want to be hypocritical as I proclaim to others about God's great forgiveness for them, and yet I won't forgive them. I never want to do that. So Paul makes his first appeal to Philemon based upon Onesimus' new relationship in the Lord. That's what we looked at last time. 
And that's a game changer. And although that changes neither the law nor the society, it does change dramatically this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, at least in the eyes of the Lord. Onesimus is now a brother in Christ, and that means the dynamic has changed between these two men. And Paul's not done making his appeal to Philemon. And after making his appeal based on Onesimus' new position in Christ, Paul now moves to the next phase of his appeal. We're going to see that in verses 15 and 16. But actually, before he makes his appeal, he does something interesting in 15 and 16 that I think is kind of outside of his original appeal. Look at that and read that. Let's read that together. He says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated you from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. So point number one in your notes, Paul makes an appeal to the providence of God. What does providence mean? Providence is when God orchestrates all the events going on to accomplish his sovereign will. He, he fits them all together. Events in your life and my life and in the same, we, we get put together and God orchestrates these events to accomplish exactly what he wants to get accomplished. Notice in verse 15. Before Paul moves to this appeal, he first mentions that perhaps God has had his providential hand in this all along. That First, let me say that Paul's not trying to wash over the sins of Onesimus, okay? He's not trying to say, you know, this is all God's doing, and he wanted Onesimus to steal from you. No, he's not condoning his sin. But what he is saying, you know, I mean, because what Onesimus did was wrong. There needs to be a reconciliation. But Paul doesn't want to rule out, especially in light of all these extenuating circumstances, that somehow God's hand was not involved in all of this. The fact that that uh, Onesimus is in Colossae, Colossae to Rome is 400 miles. That's a, that's a long way. And then he goes into a city of 10 million people. Can you imagine you run away from, I don't know how far is 400 miles from here, maybe, I don't know. Let's say Detroit. He leaves from Detroit, finds his way underground to Chicago in a city of 10 million people with a million other slaves. And by chance, runs across the apostle Paul, who happens to be in that same prison that Onesimus gets taken to or sent to. We're not sure how that happens and comes to saving faith. That's not lost on Paul. Paul says, wow, we can't rule out. I don't know if it's true or not. We'll find out in glory, but this is kind of strange, is it not? that The odds of this happening naturally are pretty slim. He's saying, I don't know for sure, but perhaps God has his hand in this for a reason bigger than just your conflict with Onesimus. Perhaps God has planned all along that when this man left you, he would come back to you another way. Maybe God orchestrated these events and took him away for a while so that you would have him back forever. 
Maybe this temporary separation was God's means to secure an eternity of fellowship and brotherhood between you two. You didn't lose a servant, Philemon. You gained a brother. And God's hands is all over this. God directed Onesimus right to Paul, knowing he would, uh, he would turn to Christ and then be returned to you as a fellow believer. Isn't that exactly what he says in verse 16? He's saying he's no longer merely a slave. He's, he's more than that now. He's now a beloved brother. And he adds, he's already been a beloved brother, especially to me. In other words, that's how I've been treating him. But then he adds, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Now, what does he mean by that? Well, to have someone in your household, even someone who was previously useless, remember, Paul referred to that in verse 11. Onesimus' name means useful. Paul said, he used to be useless to you, but now he's useful to me. A little play on words. To have someone in your household, even if they have been a thorn in your side and constant friction in your house, turning to Christ is greater cause for joy than the conversion of a stranger. He's saying, wow, think about that for a second. This person who you knew has been such an antagonist that fled from you, that caused you some financial loss, is now from your household a brother in Christ. Second, Onesimus really is a brother to Philemon in the fact that both have Paul's, their spiritual father in the Lord. Both were led to Christ by Paul. And Paul, anytime he would lead, had the privilege of leading someone to Christ, he would call them his what? His children or his son in the faith or his, right? He treated them like they were his own children. So in other words, Onesimus is going to be a tremendous blessing to Philemon, both as a Christian man and as a brother in the Lord. That's why the translation is both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, as a Christian man, he'll now serve Philemon as if he's serving unto the Lord. He'll be striving to honor God and to glorify God in and through the workplace in his service to Philemon. Because as a believer, he knows it doesn't matter who he's working for, ultimately, he's serving the Lord. And so Paul's point is, he may have been trouble to you before, but now think about what you're getting. You now have a Christian brother who is going to serve you as unto the Lord. Where before, there was nothing but antagonism here. And secondly, you're going to have this bond of fellowship and this bond of worshiping together as children of God because you're brothers in Christ. So what greater joy is there than to worship and to serve and to fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? He says, it's win-win for you, Philemon. That's his point. And so before Paul makes his appeal to Philemon based upon their relationship, he kind of interjects this thought that perhaps God is the one that's behind the tapestry here, moving the different threads together for this to happen. And perhaps through his providential hand, Philemon, you might have suffered a temporary financial loss, but you have gained a faithful Christian worker and a brother in Christ forever. Look at verse 17 then. Paul then moves to his second appeal. If then 
you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would accept me. So Paul makes an appeal to Philemon's partnership in Christ. That's point number two, partnership in Christ. Now, Paul uses his favorite word for partner, koinonon. Now, you've heard that word before, sort of. You've heard koinonia, which means fellowship. But it doesn't just mean like potluck Fifth Sunday fellowship, right? It means what? Sharing of your lives together. So when Paul uses the word koinonon, he's talking about a partner in Christ. That's what he's trying to get across here. He's saying he's a partner. And all through this epistle, Paul has continually made reference to this union that Philemon and Onesimus have through the bond of Christ and through their bond of friendship with Paul and through their mutual passion for the gospel. Now he joined both of them to himself. If you consider me, Philemon, a fellow partaker of Christ with you, a partner in ministry, a bond as a brother in Christ, then accept Onesimus the same way. If you love me, love him. If you would welcome me, welcome him in the same way. Because in the eyes of the Lord, there is no difference. You don't get to say, Philemon, I love the Lord God. I love his children, except the one that did harm to me. We don't get to do that, my friends. Those, these partnerships, they deepen as we serve together and as we fellowship together. And those who partner for God's glory develop a bond that is unbreakable. Few people experience that kind of bond you can have in the body of Christ when you worship together and serve together and fellowship together. Yet Paul is appealing to this very bond, this sense of union. In essence, he tells Philemon, if you are joined in Christ and in ministry, then you will respond the same way. And if that is true, and it is, then you should welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Because there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between slave or free, male or female. There is no difference between the Apostle Paul and the slave Onesimus. They're both children of God. And if you would treat Paul as a believer, then treat Onesimus as a believer. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The father accepts us as he accepts the son because we're partnered with Christ. We are in union. We have a bond with Christ. The reason we have access to God is because of our union with Christ. The reason he hears our prayers is because of our union with Christ. The reason you have eternal life and your sins are forgiven is because of your union with Christ. It's not because of anything special you're bringing to the table, my friends, and I say that in love, including myself. It is only because of our bond with Christ. So then, as the Father accepts us through the Son, we are to accept each other even when we've sinned against each other because we're united in our bond of Christ. Christ. 
there's an illustration of what this is really an illustration, isn't it, of what Jesus Christ has done for us as believers. We are so identified with Jesus Christ that God receives us as he receives his son. Ephesians 1, 6, we are accepted in the beloved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we are clothed in his righteousness. We certainly cannot approach God with any merit of our own because God receives us when we come to him in Jesus Christ. That word receive in verse 17 means to receive into one's family. Can you imagine a slave entering the master's family? Imagine that time period, how difficult that would be. But even more so, imagine a guilty sinner entering into God's family. Even more amazing, isn't it? So point number one, Paul makes an appeal to the providence of God. Point number two, Paul makes an appeal to Philemon's partnership in Christ. And then in verses 18 and 19, Paul offers to pay the debt owed to Philemon by Onesimus. Let's look at that together. He says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Notice that. Paul offers to pay the debt owed to Philemon by Onesimus. Would it have been wrong if Philemon demanded restitution for the financial loss he incurred through Onesimus' actions? No. Sometimes restitution is necessary for reconciliation. In fact, Numbers chapter 5 talks about this. And so it would not be wrong in this particular case because he actually did steal something from him to say, hey, there has to be some sort of reconciliation here, restitution. But let me add this. Likewise, it would not be wrong to extend grace either. He could do the same. He has a choice in which way he's going to go. To recognize that Onesimus is a changed man, that he's a brother in Christ forever and a partner in unity with him in Christ. He certainly could take the same approach as Christ takes with us for the forgiveness of our sins, as we've already discussed at length. But just to make sure that Philemon does not feel coerced in his decision, Paul offers to pay whatever is owed to Philemon himself. Because I don't know what the debt is, but it doesn't matter how much the debt is, because this runaway fugitive slave who's now a brother in Christ doesn't have a penny to his name. There's no way he could ever pay back whatever it is that he took from you, whether it's lost wages or whether it's money or jewels or gold, whatever it is. Paul says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Paul does not owe Philemon this debt, yet he offers to pay the debt owed by Onesimus to him. Why would Paul offer to pay a debt that he doesn't owe just so there can be forgiveness for this sin? Look at verse 19. He even makes it more emphatic. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. Usually somebody else would be doing it, and Paul would sign it. We've got 
couple examples of that in other scripture. But here he says, I'm writing this myself just so that you don't think that somebody else added this in. I am writing this. I will pay his debt. Wow, what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, I know Onesimus owes you a debt. But then he says this little kicker at the end. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even more your own self as well. Wow. I thought you said you weren't going to coerce me. What does he mean by that? He says, I know you owe Onesimus a debt, but may I remind you, you owe me a greater debt than he owes you. Because Philemon, you were lost in your sins forever. And God directed you into my path And I was faithful to share the gospel. And now you have eternal life and your sins are forgiven. You had a spiritual debt you couldn't pay. And because I was faithful to the gospel and shared the gospel, God saved you. And you're worried about what he owes you. That's what you're focused on. Don't let that be a hindrance for reconciliation. Paul says, I'll take the debt. I'll pay the debt. Is it really just restitution that you're looking for? Must you have your pound of flesh? Must you have that before you'll forgive? Is that really what you want? Retribution for the sin committed against you? If so, then I'll pay it. I'll pay it for my brother Anisimus because he has no way to repay such a debt. I'll pay the debt that is owed to you so that my brother can be forgiven for his sin against you. What does that sound like, beloved? You see Paul's point here? Is this not what Christ has done for you? Has he not taken the debt you owed, which you could not pay, transferred it to his account so that you may be forgiven? Paul is being very Christ-like here in his actions. To seek forgiveness for a brother through grace. Sometimes, my friends, the best kind of restitution is just complete forgiveness through the grace of God. Sometimes that's just the best kind. We just let it go and extend grace because that's what God has done for us. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Never are we more like Christ when we carry the debt so that forgiveness can take place for others. Paul is modeling that. Christ-like love, Christ-like mercy, Christ-like grace here for all of us to see. He says, I'll take the consequences of sin. Can you not open up your heart and open up your arms and forgive this person their debt in comparison to what I have forgiven you. Yes, you who have been forgiven so much, can you not forgive someone else's debt against you, especially when it's so small in comparison to what you have been forgiven? Listen, the biblical principle is just that simple. John MacArthur writes this. Somebody does something against you, offends you, owes you something. Remember this. You owe such an unpayable debt to others who have generously 
and graciously and faithfully and lovingly benefited you with the richest of spiritual blessings, and they don't demand payment, and neither could you pay it should they demand it. So can't you release the simple debt of one who has offended you in an earthly way? That's his point. My friends, no Christian has the right to refuse forgiveness to one whom God has already forgiven. Faith in Christ, the basis of justification, is also the basis of this partnership, this fellowship that we have in Christ. And justification by faith results in fellowship by faith. That means we settle in our hearts to be determined to be in mutual partnership and fellowship with all those who we share the faith with. However awkward, however muddied, however misguided that may be at times. And beloved, when you gather together in a church, a bunch of sinners who are in progress, working out their salvation, we're going to step on each other's toes now and then. And I hope that we will extend grace first and that we will recognize the bond and the unity that we have in the fellowship of Christ and that we will forgive as we have been forgiven. You want to make a huge impact in your marriage? Learn to forgive like that. You want to make a huge impact in your families? Learn to forgive like that. You want to make a huge impact in your church? Learn to forgive like that. At work, learn to forgive like that. In your community, learn to forgive like that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we'll close with this thought before we prepare our hearts for communion. 2 Corinthians 5 17, God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not counting, I'm actually might be a 19 there, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, are you an ambassador for Christ? living out a message of reconciliation with those who have sinned against you? Is that how you're known? An ambassador of reconciliation? I pray that's true in your life, my friends. Because you are never more like Christ than when you forgive others as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the